Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Once again this week, we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Jan Barry, who wrote a series about the toxic legacy that was left by Ford and uh, with some of the uh, really terrible pollution that occurred during that time and that is still actually a part of our lives today, unfortunately. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit more today, Chuck, I think about the video that was made, Man versus Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an HBO documentary. It had a powerful beginning, but then it kind of went down a path that didn't prove very productive. Well, it fizzled out just like the case fizzled out. And uh, we're also going to cover a, a little bit more about some of the other media interpretations of our friends, the Ramapos. Now, in the last episode, I, I referenced that uh, my my intern, Sonia, and I walked out of the theater at the college, and we that this is after viewing Man V. Ford, and we encountered uh, Chief Perry of the Ramapos, and he had referenced that um, he felt the film was the same old colonial crap. So the colonial crap seems to be inherent when external forces come to interpret the Ramapos. In the fall of 2011, two men who I refer to as Mike and Steve, I don't give their last names here, these fellows, Mike and Steve, approached Chief Perry with a film project they wished to embark upon. Chief Perry sent them to me, where I was working in a wood shop. Mike and Steve arrived at the shop and were a bit confused as to why they came to see me. I explained that the Ramapos have a long history of being exploited by outsiders and that I was sort of an insider-outsider kind of guy. And apparently Chief Perry wanted my opinion of them before he let them in. I decided to tell them of the tradition of stigmatization of the Ramapos. Thus, I launched into this, but almost immediately they asked if they could film this session. So I agreed, and they set up their equipment right there in the shop. And again, I launched into my little mini-lecture. And we were going along just fine until I mentioned David Cohen. And they stopped me and told me that they were planning on using some footage that they took of David Cohen as well in this film, and, and also footage of an Oklahoma Delaware, who they both admitted were longtime deniers of the Ramapos actually being Lenape Algonquin. Okay, so I told them I believed if they were allowed access to the tribe, there was little reason to further stigmatize the tribe. But if they did intend to include these men, they needed to do it sparingly at best. I strongly advocated that they ask the Ramapo elders how they wanted their story to be told. In the spring of 2014, their work, which was called Native Americans, was offered in a single rough-cut form and previewed at Ramapo College, again at the Barry Center, where we saw the earlier film. And as with the earlier film, a bus brought elders from the Turtle Clan up in Ringwood down for the viewing. I sat on a panel with Mike and Steve, Chiefs Perry and Mann, Dr. Edelstein, a lawyer named Judy Sullivan, who does some pro bono work with the Ramapos, and an author who writes about the area named Kevin Dan. I found the film disjointed, without a center, but this was a rough cut, so maybe there was hope it could continue along in its procedure. The outstanding problem was the long segments that focused on Cohen and the Delaware historian's thesis. For along with alienating the Ramapos, it stood apart from the rest of the film. I said as much during the critique, and judging by the audience reaction, this was clearly in line with their opinion. Steve and Mike heard a lot of good commentary that evening, and perhaps, eventually, someday, they may produce a superior film. 
Historically, the Ramapos have been interpreted, analyzed, studied, and have had their story co-opted by folklorists, eugenicists, historians, social workers, and the media, exclusively a story as told by others. This legacy has established a volume of misleading and erroneous information, which has in turn informed each next wave of the ongoing chronicle. Before one can even discuss a fair and honest approach to their state of contamination, one must deal with the stigmatization that preconditions every well-intended approach. We have examined the negative response of the community to the HBO documentary Man v. Ford with some consideration of another film, Native Americans, that rendered a similar unhappy response. But there is a third film, a Hollywood fictionalized story that further exploits the community and illustrates the social stigmatization of this community. It is called Out of the Furnace. And this was nothing short of a racist action adventure story complete with psychopathic violence. Although the films are each unique in their approach, they present two strong and troubling commonalities. The first of these commonalities is the preoccupation with the persona of a people prone to violence or forever being watched over by specialists or guardians. In Man v. Ford, after a good opening, the narrative becomes this meandering legal discussion staged occasionally in Ramapo country, but mostly in fine restaurants. Ultimately, the film documents a pitiful legal decision, which somehow or another is not the responsibility of the legal team. Out of the Furnace engaged the talents of a great many Hollywood progressives. Oh, Christian Bale, Forrest Whitaker, Woody Harrelson, Sam Shepard, Leonardo DiCaprio, just to name a few. But still, it manages to perpetuate a dark, violent, fictitious posture. Both films drain the viewer away from the core reality of the Ramapo experience and ultimately produce an alternate reality. The other reality is the subterfuge that draws attention away from the dynamics of a contaminated community. If we are bogged down in the legal determination of measurable dioxin levels, as in Man v. Ford, we are not focused on the impact of an outstanding cancer cluster in the community. Likewise, if we are riveted by Woody Harrelson's over-the-top psychotic characterization, we are not thinking about the real violence inflicted by Ford Motor Company, upon this community. The film Native Americans presents the second commonality that all three films suffer, that being the susceptibility these productions have from external influence. Man v. Ford followed the lawyer's lead. Out of the furnace was led by the formulaic Hollywood pattern of good versus evil. And Native Americans, after a series of internal glimpses, follows the lead of two specialists, both with a highly negative and poorly informed agenda. These stories, whether they're documentaries or fictional, ultimately seek external voices to justify and sum up their work. It has always been thus, whether it is an in-depth study by the New Yorker magazine or yet another fictitious narrative hinting at incest, as in the Cablevision production of a show called The Red Road. The work leads to externalities both professional and amateur, just for justification. These films have the commonality of not being made by the community, and perhaps, perhaps, that is the only answer to this problem. As we shall see further on, a storyteller can be wounded, but still take possession of his or her story. 
for a story as told by others will always remain as such. Chuck, before we get into the discussion about this episode, I have two quick questions. First of all, the 647 plaintiffs that Judge Harris decided the lawyers needed to work in with their caseload, is that standard operating procedure? No, actually, Joe, that's not. Uh, Just as Jan had indicated, Barry was not a random pick. He was an industry-friendly justice. So that procedure to then require all 647 plaintiffs to be a part of the caseload made the case impossible to do. At the time, I asked a Ramapo town attorney, Michael Klein, was this a standard? And, and he said, in such cases, as in environmental cases where there's a great many plaintiffs that have been interviewed, it is the custom to allow for 12 plaintiff choices picked from both sides, making it a total of only 24 to work with when it comes time for trial. 24 out of 647. Right. So what happens is when they did that, when Judge Harris did that, he's taking this, these pro bono folks, these attorneys, and telling them, you're going to now be locked in for another year. And during that time, you're going to be working around the clock, jumping from group to group to group. Sometimes even there'll be a group in the morning that you'll be working with and a different group in the afternoon in another courtroom down the hall. He literally was laying out this massive, complicated scenario that would require using up all their time and all their energy, knowing that they'd already been locked in for a long time anyway. And again, that was user-friendly. I mean, the the Ford lawyers could do this till the cows come home. Sure. So just when you need a judge that's really interested and focused on justice, you get one that's focused on corporations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Damn. Uh, I had one other question. You you also mentioned a, a cable production called Red Road, what, mm. what, what was that about? Okay, well, I, I wrote a, an end note on that in my chapter. I'm going to read a little bit from that because I, I think it's worth looking at. Uh, it was released only a couple of months after that other film, Out of the Furnace, that Hollywood fictionalized story was released. And Red Road was uh, written by Aaron Gozakowski, who was known for writing a Hugh Jackman vigilante film called Prisoners. In an interview with Star Ledger uh, writer Vicki Hyman, Vicki Hyman quoted him in February of 2014 as saying about Red Road, quote, I wanted it to feel authentic. I wanted it to ring true. So Mr. Gozakowski has said that he had no intention of drawing undue attention to the Ramapos, that in essence, he was inspired by their story to create a fictionalized Lenape tribe living half an hour from Manhattan. Hmm, okay, I I wonder who those people could be. (laughs) And furthermore, I wrote that uh, Chief Mann agreed with Chief Perry on this count that the term Red Road was a native term for, and it still is a native term, for right path of life. So it would seem Mr. Gozakowski believes that His sensational story, which is highly exploitive, is some sort of right path of life. So even my friends among the Ramapos and the Mohawks upstate, they were shocked to hear that the term Red Road would be used in a narrative 
nature that Mr. Gozakowski had actually produced. Man, oh man, it gets curiouser and curiouser. Sure does. Or as, as Chief Perry would say, same old colonial crap. <laughs> that's the truth. Well, getting back to that. So um, what I was saying was we had that panel discussion, you remember, Jan, and it was about what to do about a film like this that comes out. And we broke up into smaller groups and we sat at tables and we had Chief Mann was there, Chief Perry. A lot of, a lot of folks were there from the community. And we invited all of the actors. And all those actors I listed in, uh, in, in the film, they're all progressives. They're all big-time Hollywood neoliberal progressives. They're all the right guys. They all contribute to environmental stuff, and they all contribute to all the progressive agenda, and particularly indigenous rights like Sam Shepard. And again, his office was the only one that got back to us to tell us they weren't coming. But nobody wanted to make any comment on the nature of the story. Uh, if, if you bother to see out of the furnace, it's impossible not to see it as a piece of racist, racist junk. It's impossible not to see it as that. And, you know, in the end, the white guys win by, by killing the, the native guys. And, and I, I'm astounded that these progressives, these folks who like to align themselves, and this includes Woody Harrelson, who literally plays a character named Harold the Grote, uh, the, the Grote family are real people. I mean, they, I mean, they're indicating who they're talking about, yeah, and and they get away with it. Sam Shepard was involved with this. Yes, also? yes, yes. Why would he? I'm a huge fan of Sam Shepard's, but he did. They didn't. Obviously, they either didn't look into this, which I I don't use as an excuse. You know, that's no excuse, or they didn't care. But either way, it, it breaks my heart to think that these people who I've admired yeah. for so long, and, uh, and again, it, it's the arrogance of, uh, let's call it what it is, it's the arrogance of white power. It's yeah. just what it is. I think the difference, though, again, is, you know, they're, they've got a different agenda. They're seeking, they're, it's a different objective. Well, in this particular case, the timing was such giving the lawsuits regarding Ford, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this Hollywood film comes along that smears these people. Yeah. I think they even called them in the movie, Jackson White. Yes, they did. And the, the patrol car that Forrest Whitaker is in uh, has, a, has a logo on it for Bergen County, or for Mawa, one or the other. But it, they literally have, he yeah. plays the cop, in, in the, the good cop in the film. But they portray it, for what they extracted it from. They, they, there's no hiding. And, and the furnace, out of the furnace. It's uh, iron mining. The link to Ford is, in the documents, that Ford had to cough up some documents to the EPA because they knew that we were tracking things down. And one of their documents refers to the Jackson Whites. They live in this place. Yep. It's like uh, the Ozarks. Yep. They use the terminology. They used it. Yep. Wow. And the Red Road, the Cablevision program I referenced, and the maker of that said, this is not about the Ramapos. They inspired it, but this is about a fictitious Lenape tribe living 30 miles outside of Manhattan. Well, they're the only ones who are those people. How is it not about them? Right. But there's even references in the first two episodes to paint sludge. Uh-huh. I mean... They literally identify it, but then, of course, that program, like the the Out of the Furnace film, portrays them as psychopathic, heroin, incestuous. I mean, all the all the worst stuff you could smear them with. Right. 
which I was astounded because every one of those parties contacted me. Which parties? The filmmakers. Really? Yeah. The Red Road guy, the Red Path, whatever the hell the it Red, is. The Red Road, yeah. They wanted yeah. to make sure that things were authentic. And I, you know, I tried to get a sense of, yeah, how authentic are you? So they were asking you for the real story, yeah. the background, right. yeah. although it was a fictional. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, well, and this is early on in which, you know, when I saw what they did, this is deliberate. Yeah. Out of all the possible stories that Hollywood could tell, and there's a lot of really bad, racist, same Westerns over and over and over and over, all of a sudden it's in New Jer- set in New Jersey. Right. Yeah. The references to the old mining area, the references to the paints, I'll oh, stop. Yeah. That's what this was. Do you think that there is really some nefarious design here to yeah. try to? Yes. Oh, absolutely. To smear this group of people that's in contention with Ford. Good God. And therefore, people are not going to take seriously whatever those people have to say about their problems. Because they're bad people. Yeah. They and caused their problems. They poisoned themselves. And I heard that locally as well, even before all this stuff comes along. And Barbara Williams heard the same thing from local people. Well, you know, they're so incestful. That's why they have their health problems. Yep. Wow. So they're really keeping up with Henry, with the original Henry Ford's. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the way he was. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, oh, man. Now, now again, trying to be the optimist here, they're still here. You can pound them down. You can kick them down. You can do everything. You can kill a bunch of them off. They're still here. The backbone of Native America will not be broken. It can be, it can be injured. It can be disabled. But ultimately, it will not be broken. And from an environmental perspective, we're, if we're going to learn how to survive the damage that we've done to Mother Earth, the only people that we can learn from are the indigenous people. What about their current generation of, of youth? How are they doing? Is there a, a sense that you have of their viability? Are they breaking free of, of the chains that were put it's, on them? It's tough. Them? It's tough. They're proud. There's pride. There's native pride. You know, that's, that's the good side. The not-so-good side is the elders are all dying off. And, you know, if you really want to cripple uh, an indigenous culture, you go after the elders because they're the keepers. So... Th- in terms of governorship and direction, they're losing their elders. I told you in an earlier episode, when I was a boy, my dad took me to the basket makers, the, uh, the black ash basket makers, you know, for all those wonderful native baskets. And they were all centarians. They were 100 years old. And they were all fine and clear and interesting. Now, if you're my age, if you're in your 60s or you're 70, you're ancient because they're all dying off which means that the eldership, which is so terribly important in an indigenous community, is disappearing. So the young people, in turn, have to, they have to step up, and the middle-aged people are becoming the elders, and they're already struggling with the illnesses that they're facing. So it's a highly impacted community. Having said that, when we get into our next round of episodes, which I call the Wounded Storyteller, we're getting into the realization that they are surviving. They are disabled, but they're not out of the game. They're still here, and they're still trying to work through it. And the younger people, they're, they're latching on to that. There is something here worth fighting for. I really wonder about that because I, I wonder if the younger people are slowly integrating naturally into the rest of society, moving on, going to different places. It sounds to me, from what you're saying, is that the, 
the tribes hold together. They don't, they don't break down no matter what happens. They hold together, but that's tough. It's, it's not all, it's not all roses in age of Aquarius. It's yeah. tough. They're holding together against tremendous odds. Yeah. That's why what we're doing is so important. Yeah. You know, sharing this story further and further out among the dominant society, you know, the, the material society and, and yeah. the, the sprawl of suburbia, all that stuff. This is an important story to share. These, the, you know, the Ramapos refer to themselves as keepers of the past. Well, I, I see them as keepers of the water. You know, they're giving us the warning. You can't help but think about some of the recent decisions made by the Supreme Court when you talk about things like this. And yet, oddly, Justice Gorsuch uh, has ruled strongly in favor of Native Americans and indigenous people on several occasions that were, were, were fairly key. And at the same time, <laughs> just this determined that you can you can isolate and discriminate against a, a group of uh, people, a community of people. Uh, you, you don't have to serve them anymore now because they are who they are. How, how could that possibly not lead to a broadening of that kind of an injustice? I worry about where we're going now. These people have had a tough fight up until now, a really tough fight, but they've gotten some, they've made some headway thanks to things that Jan did and wrote about and thanks to your own stubborn part of this fight and for all of them and their part in the fight. But when you see the highest level of the judiciary in our country start to cut back on you know, college debt relief, cut back on the programs that would enable people of color to enter college, hope, you, you just wonder, like, where, what's going to happen to these people now with this kind of a government? It's a dark moment, and I really, I wonder if they're going to survive this. What do you think, Jan? Well, I recently was at the corn planting ceremony at the Three Sisters Farm that they've established in Sussex County, and several generations, and not only from New Jersey, were all coming together there, and uh, I think getting a sense of, oh, you know, with some allies, because somebody provided the land there, mm -hmm. I think a religious group, they could be doing some other things, and getting away from that particular contaminated site in what they're doing. Over the decades, many of the people who uh, I was interacting with as a reporter had already moved. I they see. were living in Pompton Lakes or upstate New York, West Milford. They no longer had stayed, but they came back constantly to visit in that community. They come back together. Yeah. But they, they're extending their effect, I guess, yeah. by, by yeah, living yeah. that way. That's another way to do it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in what, what are the solutions? How can we remedy this, you know, uh, or continue to remedy it? That's the big question right now. And how do you do that without a voice like Jan's? We keep telling the story and we keep inviting the, like at the college, at Rampo College, I invite Ramapos down in there. We, Chief Perry spends a lot of time down there. We keep encouraging the Ramapos to, to share their story regardless of some of the overt discrimination that you can't help but bump into. Um, one of the things that's upset me a lot was going on in Texas and Florida with the idea of discriminating the education in the earlier school levels, the primary and the middle schools and even the high schools, by taking out 
important histories, African-American histories, but also the whole seminal history in Florida has been struck out of the textbooks. As you take these stories out, what you do essentially is you politicize the reality of history. You turn it into uh, something that's essentially governed by a white homogeneous mentality. You're writing them back out of history. They were written out of history once, and then we did have a, a great movement toward inclusivity, and we, we got a lot of uh, black and, and Native Americans and black Indians, people who are, uh, have ancestry in, in both of those uh, ethnicities, to work their histories and their stories into our curriculum, and now there's a tremendous push to get rid of it. And this, yeah. is, this is something we really have to stand against. Well, they're burning books again for the first time. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. You know, you talk about Florida, my God, you know. Yeah. Books like The Color Purple and, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just. Pretty straightforward, basic stuff that we, we can never let our guard down. I'm sorry, but uh, this, there's, there's always that attempt to marginalize and demonize. There's still a book out there called, uh, uh, I think it's Weird New Jersey, that textbook. And it's a culmination of a lot of mythological stuff, but it's also it collected in, in there uh, a lot of the extremely racist mythologies about a, a number of groups of people, including our Native Americans. And when I ask my students, what do they know at the beginning of a term about our indigenous brothers and sisters, invariably in a class of, say, 17 to 30 students at Ramapo College, these are undergrads, these are relatively mm -hmm. intelligent people, they put their hands up and they tell me we're in New Jersey. Uh, if that's a starting point, we have to find a way to access that. We have to find a way to deconstruct that. Yeah, I think the objective here, you know, you say you want to end positive, and I, I maybe I can do that this time. Okay, your turn, Joey. All right, I'm going to try. Uh, we got to vote. We got to stay involved. We yes. can't be beaten down. We can't. I, I hear sometimes people say, you know, I feel like I I'm giving up. I just, I, you know, after that one horrible week just before the Fourth of July, by the way, uh, where the Supreme Court basically took a took away so much justice and so much support for so many people. Uh, it was really a, a sickening moment in history. But I said to my son, look, you can get angry, you can get mad, but you can't give up. You can't walk away. Right. You right. have to stay in this fight. It's the good fight. It's the fight of your life. His more than mine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be here that much longer. The millennials and the, the Gen Zers and all the rest, this is their fight now. They're going to have to bring this country back to something that resembles a, de a true democracy again. Mm -hmm. It ain't going to be easy. No. But, you know, they got good mentors, like just the three of us. We're, we're good, well-intended people, and they can extrapolate from our work. There are so many good mentors out there. There are so many good people who've been doing this kind of work for so long. Yep. You know, the, the Ramapos have got so many people within their community. Vivian Milligan, to me, she was phenomenal. I've referenced her a bunch here. She's passed on. But she worked with so many people that those people are carrying her work forward in terms yeah. of the history of the, the Turtle Clan, but also in terms of the, the history of their efforts to get the cleanup done and so forth. Yep. Chief Vincent Mann came back from a life elsewhere. Yeah. Like he worked in construction, and he decided to come back here, and this would be what he's going to focus in on is how to help the community. And so far, you know, he's put together the Three Sisters Farm, and he has these ideas for getting everybody to, to be moved by the state to a locale not that far away. Tranquility Ridge. That's 
currently a combination of county park land and state hunting land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that in a later episode. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, it's but, good but, stuff. Yeah, that is a positive, and even democracy now. Mm-hmm. You know, those voices. They're so important. They need to be amplified. They need to be copied and pasted and and repeated because they're the ones that are still doing the tough work that Jan and his colleagues did back in the 70s and and throughout this time. We have to find a way to amplify those voices because God knows there's plenty of negative voices out there, Mm -hmm. you know. And we're doing it. Yes, sir. And our coming up episodes, we're going to be extrapolating numerous episodes from my favorite chapter in the book, which is called Wounded Storytellers. And we'll be looking at the stories that the Ramapos tell and also how the stories manifest as healing stories. I'm looking forward to that, Chuck. And if I may, I want to say thank you again to Jan Barry, who was really instrumental in this effort when it was happening and early on and really fathered, I think, some of this activist effort. I wish this was uh, being filmed because you guys, we're sitting in in Jan and and Paula's house and this house is like a hotbed of culture and activism. It really is. You can't look in any direction without seeing. I'm looking across the way at a poster. What is that? Anti-apartheid, pro-democracy poster and, and and right next to it, the, the, the poster of Sunflower County, Mississippi Courthouse, that little photograph illustration. I mean, just amazing stuff in it's every wonderful. direction. If, go in the kitchen and see a photograph of them with uh, uh, Pete Seeger, right? That was Pete Seeger on the refrigerator. Wow. How about <laughs> just, that? <laughs> this One is, of my this heroes. Good stuff. good stuff to be here. Thanks, yeah. Jan, for having us here. Thank you for including me. Thank you so much. And thank you, Paula. She's sneaking around off, off mic. <laughs> We'll see you again next week with more of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1111.
845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.